Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Throughout the pandemic, we've encountered the phrase existential crisis. Far more often than before, COVID-19 changed life as we know it. The literary work of French-Algerian writer Albert Camus is considered a primary source of existentialist thought. Camus' novel, The Stranger, has been reimagined by director Michael Haverty. Later this hour, he'll tell us about the Atlanta multimedia production of The Stranger by the Object Group. Conductor Robert Spahner, who overcame the loss of live performance during the pandemic by devoting time to his own compositions, and the result was most gratifying. Let's meet up with the maestro. When the Atlanta Symphony gave its last performances in March, no one had any idea when normal life would resume, let alone live concerts. As the world adapted to virtual platforms, so has music. The Atlanta Symphony Orchestra is performing together in person, though not to a live audience. The concerts are being streamed on the ASO virtual stage. Music director Robert Spano joined us to talk about the fall season and to catch up on what he's been doing in recent months. Here, he tells us about a special observance at the Aspen Festival, where Mr. Spano is also music director. They did a tribute to me because it was my 10th season at Aspen, which was incredibly, well, it was overwhelming. Yeah. So kind. People were just wonderful. Maybe my favorite thing in that event was uh, the 10 assistants I've had who come out of the fellowship program. Each year we, we choose one to come back the following summer as the assistant conductor for the festival. The 10 I've had in those uh, 10 years got on some kind of link and they did some kind of clapping game. (laughs) <laughs> and they were all doing it in, in sync. So they had all done it with a metronome so that they were all the same. And it was fantastic. It was just, it was so silly and so wonderful. And it's, it's also seeing them, the 10 of them on the screen together doing this silly clapping game, their personalities were revealed in how they were doing it. One was deadly serious and wasn't going to make any mistakes. And the other one was being a total uh, ham about it. And it it was just great. It was really wonderful. Oh, I'm so glad that you had that. My God, what COVID has done for celebrations. So the, the Aspen Festival that we had was really just a virtual festival. We had about three events a week. But yeah, it, but that, though, that was a big deal. Oh, yeah. I'm so glad we were able to do that. But, um, but really, I was looking at a black hole of time. As soon as I realized we weren't 
doing the Aspen Festival for real, I looked at the calendar and thought, wow, I, what am I doing? What will I do? And I realized, fortunately, I realized, well, I'm always trying to find time to write. Yes. I've always juggled, tried to juggle four things in my life with varying degrees of success. And I realized when I was planning to leave the ASO at the end of 2021 season, which is uh, the one that we're in at the moment, I was looking to find time to compose. And here was all this time. And so I became a full-time composer. I took full advantage of COVID. I finished a set of songs for Kelly O'Connor and she's coming in November to sing Scheherazade of Ravel with us, but we're also going to make, we're going to do a performance of those songs and record it. The, the, I've wanted to write those for her for at least two, three years now. And the poetry is Rilke. The five poems I set were all from the sonnets to Orpheus, which is that wonderful set of his, well, two sets actually, with the same title of just inspired poetry, a kind of ecstatic energy in that poetry. I got to live with that poetry while working on the songs. And it was just, it made those months, it took me about four months to finish those. And, and so it made those four months, however miserable, so many things were, are, and how difficult things are for everyone these days and missing everyone, which I think everyone has shared that frustration of not seeing the people we love the way we're used to. I, in the midst of all that, I had this source of incredible joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. It was, it was just great. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Thinking about the Orpheus sonnets, I mean, to have music as your muse, you can't do any better than that. Uh, exactly. Or- it was just incredible. You know, the first, I, the, one of the ones I set is the first one, which is that just magnificent retelling of the basic Orpheus story of charming the animals. It, it's just magnificent. I, I set them in the original German, partially because I didn't have to worry about copyrights that way, but also as I really dug into them, no English translation was sufficient to capture the subtleties of the German. And my German isn't good enough to catch the subtleties of the German either, but with a dictionary and with doing my own translations and looking at all the existing translations, I I did get quite a rich reading of of the German, and I I decided just to leave it. What a productive period you had during lockdown, and... You know, that was the other thing, Lois. I thought everybody was, at that time, I, I hope people aren't forgetting essential workers. Everybody was talking about essential workers, and I thought, well, Nietzsche said without music, life isn't worth living, and therefore musicians are essential workers, and I better get to work. And it, and it just was, it was the right thing to do. And it, it also then didn't give me the time to obsess over all the negativity that, that one could in this terrible period. And I, and I just worked six, eight hours a day, and it was wonderful. Mm, cannot wait to hear those songs. And that concert will be soon. The recording, will she perform a recital as well? We haven't decided. We may do a whole program. And we're also, we're trying now at the hall to organize a couple events. And it's premature for me to say this, but I think it's okay if I do, with live audience, just a few. So if we have very few people on stage and we can socially distance the audience sufficiently, so maybe have 20 to 30 people. In a hall that seats 1,700. I think we can do it. Safely. So um, we can't do that with the orchestra because right now we're limiting the number of players on stage to 35 for any number of reasons. In part, the ongoing governor's mandate of no gatherings of no greater than 50 people. But because we need other staff involved, it means in addition to the social distancing required on stage, it means really not having an orchestra larger than 35 these days. But if we go to chamber music or solo music, 
certainly with Kelly and I on stage, then we can invite any number of the of people into the hall. So I'm hoping we're going to be able to pull that off soon. Oh, I hope so too. Congratulations on resuming performances with the musicians in Symphony Hall. Recently, I spoke with Dr. Carlos Del Rio. Oh, he has been such a great help to us. He is extraordinary in his love for music as well as his medical expertise. But, Robert, he said you texted him right after the opening concert to express how thrilled you felt to be back where you belong. What has it been like returning to the virtual stage with an audience you know is there but cannot see? That part is very frustrating. And if anything, and and not to diminish the joy that I know we all felt being together, playing together, but in the midst of that, there are real challenges. Um, The distancing makes it much more difficult to hear each other in addition to the plexiglass that we need around the wind and brass players. So the the act of trying to play together becomes more challenging. And then there is that mystery of what happens when there's a live audience and what happens between the performers and the audience members because that's where the music lives. And not having the audience present means it's much more like making a recording. Now, the wonderful thing about the recordings we've made with Elaine Martone, who's been our producer while I've been making recordings with the orchestra, is that we kind of play for her. We know she's our audience and and it's, it's wonderful. So while we've been doing these recordings in the hall now, the, the video recordings, uh, which really are live performances in a sense, because we don't do the kind of editing we do when we make recordings, which also adds a kind of level of pressure. I often think of her listening because I'm familiar with that energy of, of performing for someone. And you know, I had a opera director friend early on in my career who was, you know, twice my age, who And I was just starting to tour around and guest conduct quite a bit. And I said, it's so hard when you get to a town and you don't know anyone in the audience. And he said, well, you know what you should do? Imagine someone in the audience that you want to give the concert to. Because as a performer, if you don't have that feeling of sending your music out to a recipient, then the magic is gone. And so... uh, I remembered that when we started doing these recordings and I've used Elaine a number of times and my grandmother was such a great uh, music lover. And I often, when I was touring around, would imagine her listening in the audience. And then I've, I've used some other people too, but it, it's, a, it's a useful thing because we miss the audience so much. We miss our subscribers. We miss our every ticket buyer uh, and we make music for the listeners, and mm. we miss them. Well, but at least we get to connect in this way, and that's yes. a good thing. Yes, and, you know, it goes both ways because music lovers in Atlanta feel bereft without this symphony, and here you are at least back with some of the musicians performing together live on stage, And with some very interesting programs, I was hoping you would talk about what the constraints with no more than 35 people on stage, what those constraints have meant for the music you select. Well, I think as so often happens, necessity is the mother of invention. And so these restrictions actually have made it possible in a way, or at least provoked us into exploring repertoire we don't do as much because so much of what we normally do is the larger repertoire because we have this magnificent large orchestra. Now 
digging into the repertoire and there's a treasure trove of things for smaller ensembles. It's, it's made it possible for us to really dig into that. We haven't performed in my 20 years a great deal of the music of Haydn, for example. And Donald just did a week with us recording a Haydn symphony and a Haydn cello concerto. And he was exhilarated to be doing Haydn with the ASO. I certainly was thrilled to be doing the Mozart we did earlier. I'm very keen and excited about coming up to the little Ravel project because those pieces that we're doing, we have to have quite a small string section since we have the necessity of the winds that are in the score to do Mother Goose and the Tombeau de Couperin. In that way, I'm anticipating it being a real pleasure for that intimacy to be there. Would you explain, please, for listeners who may not understand why the winds must have those shields, those clear plastic shields around them? Yeah, this really has to do, there's been a, there's ongoing studies, but there has been a great deal of research done into what kind of instruments spray the virus you know it's looking for super spreaders and the reason we have those baffles is to prevent that from happening there's ongoing research into what happens with choruses they're doing research very specifically between the different instruments we just learned something fascinating about the spread from a clarinet that it actually tends to go I mean, we intuitively kind of assumed if it was traveling, uh, it would be coming out of the bell. But in fact, a lot of direction it goes is straight up, which is counterintuitive, but that's what they've been finding out. So as we continue to learn more, we'll be able to do these things more precisely and effectively. But given what we know now, these are there as a protective measure for, for everyone. Yes. I read an article maybe a week ago about choruses and the difficulty, the sadness of not being able to perform together. And I think the writer described it, choral singing as the AK-47s of music making during COVID. (laughs) (laughs) That's very good. But winds and brass not far behind, and I, I feel so sorry for those musicians, as well as for those of us who welcome hearing the larger orchestra and the full orchestration. I think that's one of the biggest frustrations for us in the ASO family is that this was to be the celebration of 50 years of the chorus that Shaw created. And now we can't convene them. It's so frustrating. And I know how deeply the chorus members are missing each other and missing being able to make music together that way. Uh, Of course, I stay in touch with Norman McKenzie and... It's a challenge. I think that this is going to be a very unpredictable return, I, I believe. If, if we look around, Broadway has canceled through the end of this season, the Met has canceled through the end of this season, and here we are able to do at least these virtual concerts. I'm so grateful for that. And so how this progresses over the next year or two, how we return to having live performing and musical experiences together. It's going to be, without question, an interesting ride and a challenging one. Well, for now, we have this reimagined series of fall concerts, and you have one coming up, I believe it's November 12th, with the principal bassoonist. Oh, our Baroque week, yes. Andrew is going to be playing a, a Baroque bassoon concerto by Hertel.
we're also doing the Bach Third Orchestral Suite, where um, it's been, you were asking about programming under these restrictions. One of the challenges is to employ our brass because a lot of the smaller repertoire that involves strings and winds doesn't involve the brass so much. So looking for things that bring them back into the fold is part of a, a challenge. And the Bach is wonderful for that because this is that magnificent orchestral suite with three trumpets and timpani. And then we're also doing uh, a number of pieces out of Handel's water music. So I, I'm sure this is gonna be a splendid menu. obvious way to go when you have to use fewer instruments is simply to do the repertoire that was conceived historically for these size forces. I, I'm happy, even though it's obvious, I'm happy we're doing it. And, and just because it's obvious doesn't mean it's the wrong thing to do. I think it's a great thing to do. But also we keep looking for the variety, for instance, the Ravel program, finding ways to do things that we can do in this very special way right now. Indeed. Museums have it best. I mean, performing artists, musicians, actors, dancers. Yeah, that's where, have, that's the, where we have this incredible vacuum. Yes. And, and it, there are so many unknowns, but it, it is also refreshing to hear stories such as yours about composing intensively during the four months of lockdown and now re-immersing yourself or immersing yourself in more 18th century repertoire and smaller ensembles from later music and, and just appreciating that for what it is. Creative people can be pretty creative. Yeah, I don't think there's any stopping that. No, and you know, we've, we're seeing it with actors and dancers as well, but oh, how much we long for you to be able to have that live audience and to be a part of it. Any thoughts about after the first of the year? Well, these days we plan multiple possibilities so that we're ready to change lanes if, that, if need be. So we're always looking at what's coming up with an eye to having to make it smaller, keeping it at the scope and under the restrictions we're currently living with, and then what we could be doing if these restrictions change. So it, it makes planning very difficult in a way, but it's also kind of exciting to have so many, to realize that the, the possibilities are endless. So coming up with three different programmatic contents for what we had originally planned is, is challenging, but as you say, it, it sparks creativity. So it's been, it's been a pleasure, a real pleasure, to come up with these programs. And it's a little frustrating because when you latch on to one that you think, oh, that's really terrific, but you can't do it, <laughs> then it's a little frustrating. Oh, this is where what some words have been vying for most used this year. I think pivot is among them. Pivot's pivot, up there. Pivot, nimble, 
being nimble. Nimble, that's up there. But this is this is what you must be. And fortunately, like everything else you do, Robert Spano, you are finessing it beautifully. It has been way too long since we've spoken on air, and I thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Lois. And having you on air, I'm not kidding. It has been so wonderful to hear you during these months because it's just, that's part of the reality I remember and love, and it's still there. (laughs) As everything seems to be crumbling around us. The love is mutual, and WABE is now in its 46th year of airing Atlanta Symphony broadcast. Oh, that's fantastic. So we're lifers. That's good. (laughs) Maestro, thank you so much. Thank you, Lois. It's always a pleasure, but especially now, as it's been so many months, great to talk with you. Atlanta Symphony Music Director Robert Spano. He'll lead members of the orchestra in a concert of Baroque music Thursday at 8 p.m. ASO Principal Bassoonist Andrew Brady makes his solo debut. You can find more information about the virtual concert on our website wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. During the pandemic, we've encountered the phrase existential crisis far more often than before COVID-19 changed life as we know it. The author Albert Camus is described as an existentialist and thought of most often with that movement, though He considered himself more of an absurdist. Camus' most famous works are The Plague and his novel The Stranger. Michael Haverty and the Object Group will present an original multimedia adaptation and critical investigation of The Stranger, Michael Haverty joins us now. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. It's a pleasure to be here. First off, for those who haven't read the book or may not remember the novel from high school, can you give us a quick summary of The Stranger? Absolutely. It's a a very slim novel, and it was written in 1942. It's set in French-occupied Algeria, in the city of Algiers, and it follows a pied noir, or or a person of French background living in Algeria. It follows this man who's a simple post office worker, and he just goes about his life. He gets a telegram that his mother has passed away, and he goes to her funeral all very blankly and without a lot of emotion. After the funeral, he has a fling with a friend and then is drawn into the troubles of a neighbor, which all ends up with him shooting an Arab man on the beach in Algiers for not very much reason that he can explain. And then the ending of the book, we are in trial as he is arrested and ultimately convicted not for killing the Arab man, but for not loving his mother, and he is convicted to execution. Can you tell us the opening line of The Stranger? Mama died today, or yesterday maybe, I don't know. Yeah, that really grabbed me as a 17-year-old. Yes, yes, yes. They still teach this book in high schools and in college courses, so a lot of us read it in high school. And I read that this has 
very profound meaning for you as a theater professional. You spent two years creating this production? Yeah, and that's normal for me. With the object group, we follow a two-year process for creating all new work. And that really allows us to, number one, raise the sufficient funds for our, our small creative team to to be paid appropriately and to have everything we need for materials. But it also allows us to really critically investigate the stories that we're telling and spend time with them and researching the background, the history of the author, of any moments in the book that are historical so that we really can offer audiences a fully fleshed out critique and new understanding of the book. Well, these have been two eventful years how has your vision of the production evolved with events of recent years? Well, there have been a lot of evolving moments in this work. I will say that about midway through our process, I had to make a decision whether to do it or not. Once I felt like I really understood the author's intent, and it was only through my team and I's ability to discover some counter narratives that we could tell alongside Camus' story that we decided to go forward. I think that Camus himself is trying to do a lot in this book, and it's taught in high schools as a quote-unquote text of decolonization. And I think there's a lot more to that title than is usually understood or investigated. Camus himself, as an Algerian-born Frenchman, was born and locked into this apartheid-like society, a colonized society where the Arab majority were denied the rights to vote, the right to do almost anything, have jobs. It was a true classic French colony. And he grew up in this, and yet he evolved. There are stories of him during the um, French-Algerian War. He actually helped to spirit some of the Algerian revolutionaries out of the country before they could be assassinated. So he saved lives. But at the same time, his famous quote from when he won the Nobel Prize, he said, if I have to choose between my mother and justice, I will choose my mother. And I think that that quote sums up the messiness and complicated nature of Camus' relationships with Arabs and with his home country. How so? I think that because of the environment Camus grew up in and was educated in, it was very, very difficult for him to understand Arabs as fully human. You see in the book, as he's striking blows against the French colonists, all of his Arabs do not have names, they do not speak, and the way in which the main character sees them, he sees them as threatening and he sees them as objects dead trees and rocks. And so I think Camus is in a way allowing some of how he sees Arabs and how he sees himself as a stranger in this society to come out in his work in a way that is really a cautionary tale, I think. But that suggests that there was something autobiographical in the character. Absolutely. And I think just as in all autobiographies, memory is very fungible. He wrote this book after he had left Algeria and moved to France. He went back to France in 1940? Yes, I believe he left in 1940. So he went back just in time for the Nazi occupation. That's right. He went back to work in the resistance, and uh, he was a newspaper editor for some radical newspapers. Well, that would not suggest that he viewed others as subhuman. I think it's just very complicated. And if you look at his writings, you look at the way he wrote about Algeria, the, the statements, he made many, many statements and, and uh, papers about the Algerian conflict. He did not live to see it end um, with independence, but he steadfastly refused that independence uh, should be had by the Algerians. And so even though he's this brilliant philosopher, and a brilliant writer, I think it's this interesting sort of peek into his mind where at least in our production, we try to show both what Camus is seeing and then what a modern audience might see with a little more information about what was going on in Algeria. 
I was hoping you would indeed talk about the adaptation because the novel is so rife with philosophical ideas. It's so cerebral and less on plot. What were some of the challenges you faced turning The Stranger into a filmed production? Well, you hit the nail right on the head, Lois. Um, Something we say a lot in the puppetry community is that the worst thing that any puppet does is talk. (laughs) It's not usually fun to watch a puppet talk for an extended period of time. What is best in a puppet show is action, is transformation, just movement in general, so that you can really dig into the visual nature of the form. So, you know, the book is split into two halves, and the first half is actually pretty active. He's running around, he's seeing people get beaten in the streets, he's, uh, he's experiencing his humdrum life in a Fantasia-like way. He's very sensory when he sees the sun, it's, it becomes almost this archetypal sun that is beating his spirit down. When he has sex with his girlfriend, it's this explosion of feeling, if not emotion. But the second half of the book takes place completely in court. And it'd be hard for me to think of a a harder (laughs) scene to make all puppets. But what we did was we just went really wild with our design scheme. So all the characters are based on ideas from French New Wave cinema, from early American comic books and from uh, the lawyers, for instance, uh, in the courtroom are designed as vintage projectors so they can project their evidence onto the screens next to the court. Oh, wow. The judge himself is actually a framed portrait of a judge that's brought in by a police officer. And of course, all the different characters, we, we really dug into the Punch and Judy archetypes for this show when we decided to do it with hand puppets. So we started to think, well, there are all these archetypal characters in Punch and Judy, the cop, the priest, and they really slide quite nicely onto the characters of L'Etranger. Merceau is Punch. Punch is the ultimate guy who doesn't care about anybody or anything. He's an anti-hero, just like Merceau. And so by playing with the puppetry, we also elevate the humor of it. The humor in the absurdity of the bad decisions that people are making in this play and the emptiness that is inside most of them. Camus' career peaked during the age of French New Wave cinema, and this existentialism that he was associated with, the absurdist with which he identified, what is it about these movements that lend themselves so well to French New Wave cinema? The new wave movement, and not just in France, but also in the Czech Republic and in Brazil, has a lot of similar revolutionary ideas in terms of art making and in terms of what can be shown on the screen. I was so inspired by the work of Agnes Varda in particular, in that this is the bag around which Camus was working. This shows his influence when you look at Godard and you you look at Varda and, and some of these other great directors of the new wave. And there's just something in the mood and flow, the way they look at objects, the way they chop up the screen into different shapes that really lends itself to puppetry. So in a way, a lot of our video is made into puppets by cutting them into different shots and then combining them together on the screen. And it just creates the mood of the book. Now, Michael, would you explain how people can view and experience your production with the object group. This film will be premiered November 12th through the 15th. Right now you can go to theobjectgroup.org and there will be a link that will let you pass through into the performance and get a reservation. You will need a reservation, but the premiere is free of charge. And this may be the only time the film is ever seen because the rights holders at the Camus estate have told us that the novel is not available for anyone to make a film of. And they're only making an excuse for us because of COVID and everything that's gone on, the fact that we cannot premiere live. Will you also have a discussion with the audience? 
Absolutely. There will be a talk back after the premiere on Thursday. And then on Sunday, before the show, the show's at one o'clock on Sunday, there will be a two-hour discussion with the entire creative team, also online. So you can find all that through the Object Group's website. Michael Haverty, I applaud your ambition with this project, two years in the making, and the scope of what you are doing during this pandemic? Oh, it's it's kept me sane, to be quite honest. When I was able to get back in the room with my small two performers and me, and our director was on a laptop in the corner, and just stepping back into those roles of, of making theater, it was the best feeling I'd have had in a long time all year. Adding meaning to life. Michael Haverty, thank you very much. Thank you, Lois. You're a joy as always. Michael Hafferty is the artistic director of the Object Group, his multimedia filmed production of Camus' novel The Stranger has its virtual release through Seven Stages Theater Homebrew at Home series this Thursday through Sunday. For more information on how to sign up for the free event, check out our website at wabe.org slash citylights. Viewing public art is a welcomed aspect of visiting Hartsfield-Jackson Atlanta International Airport. Those at the airport are being greeted with a new exhibition of photos called APG to ATL, Airport 2020, presented by the Atlanta Photography Group in partnership with Atlanta Celebrates Photography. Judith Pishner is the executive director of the Atlanta Photography Group, she joined me via Zoom in September with Amy Miller, the juror for this exhibition and executive director of Atlanta Celebrates Photography. Here's how the two groups got their start. Atlanta Celebrates Photography actually started 22 years ago as an offshoot, I guess you could say, of the Atlanta Photography Group, which is an older, more established organization at the time. So it basically started as a group of people who wanted to do some more public programming. It was a membership organization to serve its members. And so there was sort of a natural kind of division on the, the scope of services between the two organizations. And we've grown up to be great friends. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> We have, and and this is Judith, and the Atlanta Photography Group is, as Amy mentioned, is a membership-based fine art photographic organization here in Atlanta that began in 1987. The goal of the Atlanta Photography Group is to provide opportunities for our members, which includes exhibition opportunities on an ongoing basis, as well as professional development and educational opportunities. We host about 10 or more exhibitions each year, and that is on an ongoing basis. So we have events regularly. Amy, what determined the photos you selected for this show? When thinking about putting a show in the airport, you know, you have to think about your venue and your audience. Airports are emotionally charged. They're visually busy the people in the airport are, are busy. They may have anxiety or anticipation. They may be stressed out. So there's, there's everything kind of happening in this busy space. So I always look for images that are positive, interesting. I do not select images that are about airplanes or flying. It's too literal and you know people don't wanna think about that. Some people are anxious about flying. So I look for images that are of high quality, are positive and imaginative, and visually arresting enough to stand out in that crowded atrium. Hmm. Were diversity and inclusion part of the criteria for 
the artists represented in this show? The jury process for me, and this is Amy, was a blind process. So I had no idea who submitted until after the selection process was complete. I will say that the photography represents a very wide, diverse array of individuals, locations, situations, and scenes. So uh, again, you know, not being aware of the diversity of the actual photographers, I can tell you the subject matter is quite diverse. And I must say, from what she picked, I'm looking at the names of the artists picked now, and it is quite a diverse group of photographers, male and female, um, artists of color, young and old, and from across the country, as well as one artist uh, from Paris as well, who's been included in the exhibition. Amy spoke about the nature of subjects that are important to consider for an airport exhibit. From just the few photos I saw, there was a nice range of styles from nature to self-portraits to surrealism. And one of the photographers, Fernet Coy, took a self-portrait and added some fantasy elements to it. How would you describe his photo so much to say? I would say that this photograph is dreamy. It stands in contrast to some of the other pictures in the show. For instance, there's a dramatically lit black and white portrait of a, of a girl with the Day of the Dead kind of face makeup on and she's lit by a candle. And it's an imaginative picture, very powerful. This photograph by Frené Coy is kind of the exact opposite of that. It's very powerful, but it's digitally manipulated. It's a dreamy photo composition, almost an illustration of an idea rather than a, you know exact realistic depiction of a thing that's happening. Uh, it's a man reading a letter. He's being pierced by arrows. It's very narrative, and that's something that you'll see with a lot of the pictures in this show. They have multiple interpretations, and it ensures everyone will walk away with their own narrative, no matter what their background. With reduced air travel, why did you still want to showcase these photos at the airport? I would say that there, there's still quite a bit of travel going on. It's also, um, like you said, with reduced travel and with some of the COVID restrictions on other locations, this is a wide open public space that people can still go to whether they're traveling or not. It's in the public area at the airport. So people could still go and see the exhibition if they would like to stop by in, in the area. And with the people still traveling, I think there's some anxiety with them of all of the things going on. And as Amy said, the photographs, they're, they're beautiful, they're thought-provoking, they're inspiring, and I think they are good respite through the, you know, through the process of traveling during, during the times we're in right now. And for those who are still cautious about flying or even going out in public, can viewers see these photos online? Oh, absolutely. We have an online exhibition. When the exhibition opens today, the online exhibition will also open at the atlantaphotographygroup.org website, and you will be able to see all of the images online, as well as if anyone wants to visit the airport, they can see them in person. They're absolutely stunning and gorgeous photographic prints. It's really a beautiful exhibition. Are they strictly for exhibition or can they be purchased? Oh, all of the images are available for purchase, and that can be done also by contacting us at the Atlanta Photography Group. We're happy to facilitate the purchase of the images, and I know that would be a great support to the artist as well as the Atlanta Photography Group, which is a nonprofit art organization. 
the Atlanta Photography Group hosts a myriad of events from discussions to Wednesday meetups, speaking engagements, workshops. How has APG adapted to the virtual realm since the COVID-19 outbreak? Well, thank you for asking. We do have quite a lot of activities going on, and it has been interesting. We were able to pivot early on and move to online events from our educational opportunities to exhibitions, juror talks, artist talks, and our monthly critique sessions, which had previously taken place in the gallery in Atlanta, we moved to online as well, which has actually been one of the silver linings to changing our process because we do have members from across the country and they've now been able to participate in the critiques through the online process because online people can participate from anywhere, including our most recent critique leader, who we recruited. Um, He's an instructor at the Rochester Institute of Technology at RIT, and he was able to join us as the critique leader from New York, while the rest of us were, I would say, 70% in Atlanta, and other artists joined in from Alabama and Texas, Florida, New York, New Jersey, and just really around the country. So it really has been, in some ways, a benefit. Judith Pishnery, the executive director of the Atlanta Photography Group, with Amy Miller, juror for this exhibition and executive director of Atlanta Celebrates Photography. The show APG to ATL, Airport 2020, is on view now in the main atrium at Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport. And you can also view the show online. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Emory Film Professor Tonine Allison will tell us about movie depictions of veterans. We'll also hear about The Radium Girls, a new film by Lydia Dean Pilcher. City Lights producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and... I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.